Good morning. It's my great pleasure to be with you today. Whether you're here in the sanctuary or joining us online, we're glad that you're here. Now, I'm one of those people who really enjoys times of silence. For me, it's the early hours before dawn, which where I truly find them, since I tend to be up for about two, two and a half hours before anyone else in my home. For the first hour or so, about the only sound you'll be able to hear is the flipping of the pages of my Bible and the thunk of my coffee mug as it comes down on the coaster that's on the table beside the recliner where I do my morning devotion. And occasionally you'll hear the grunts of my dog who wants to just make sure I'm okay while I'm being quiet. I don't just like these times, I truly need them. So for so many of us, our lives are full of the intrusion of sound. Our phones will ring, they'll chime with text messages and voicemails, and how many of us have had more than one person try to sell us an extended warranty on our car (laughs) this week? Even while we're in here, if we were to be silent for a moment, we'd be able to hear the background hum of the air conditioner. And if you're like me, you might just want to do your cooking, your cleaning around the house with music playing to try to distract you from those mundane details. This is the anechoic chamber in Orpheal Labs in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which according to the Guinness Book of Records is the quietest place on earth. It was designed as a location where you can test products to see what the amount of noise they actually make is in a room that has a negative amount of background ambient noise. There have been days when I've wanted to spend time in those steel and concrete walls that are surrounded by the honeycomb of absorbent tiles. Now, to give you an idea of what my life is normally like, it is not that anechoic chamber. About once a week, um, my wife and two children and our dog like to go out to get ice cream after dinner. It's a five-minute drive up to the ice cream shop. It's a wonderful time together, but the moment we get in the car, the kids start to tell us what flavors of ice cream they want. Wit, our youngest, always wants a chocolate ice cream cone. Our daughter, Claire, has a list of different cups of ice cream that she would like, with the current favorite being triple chocolate Oreo. If you have not tried triple chocolate Oreo, it is worth the extra three miles you need to run to burn off a taste of it. Now, the drive there is fairly tame. It's the drive home that becomes a little crazy. See, about two years ago, our daughter found these videos on YouTube that are what she calls Guess the Sound videos. And these Guess the Sound videos are they play a little sound clip and then give you 10 seconds to figure out what it is. There's a whole series of them. Claire's favorite are the Disney villain ones. My preferred is the farm animals because I can always get the pig and the cow right. Now, when she found these videos, Claire decided the perfect time to listen to them is on the drive home from getting ice cream. So imagine our car with Lauren, Claire, Witt, and I all trying to guess what these sounds are. And within maybe 500 feet of leaving the parking lot, Witt decides he wants another ice cream. And then he decides that we need to take a different route home and starts explaining where we should turn so that we can take our normally five-minute drive to a 10, 15, or 20-minute one. And then to make it a little more fun, in the back of the car is our dog, Butch, who does get his own ice cream, 
but he decides that he needs to bark at every single dog who is trying to casually enjoy their evening stroll. It starts to feel as though it's the opposite of that anechoic chamber. In the midst of our lives, we all have more sounds, more noises than we're ever aware of around us. And for so many of us, we can crave peace and quiet, that silence that so easily eludes us. Especially if you happen to be in that stage like me where your youngest child asks why after every single thing that we ask him to do. But as is so often the case, the silence that we think that we want is not what we truly need. This week we find ourselves in a uh, strange place in this year-long journey through the Bible that we're calling Quest, as this is one of the two weeks where there's actually not an assigned reading. If you think back, we did not have any assigned readings on the week of Easter for very good reasons of Easter didn't fall in line with everything since we were in the middle of the Old Testament. But today we are in the spot that exists between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. As the prophecies of Malachi ended about 400 year, for the year 400 BC, the children of Israel entered into a time that is often called the 400 years of silence, or the intertestamental period, which is usually thought of as that point that began when Malachi finished saying, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And this time of silence ended with the birth of Jesus and is seen even more clearly with the arrival of John the Baptist, who we often think of as wearing the mantle of the prophet Elijah, as Malachi had said, calling out to the people of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Which brings us to this place where the 400 years of silence was first prophesied by Amos in a, one of the chapters that we weren't able to cover back in May when we were dis discussing Amos. In the midst of his prophecies against the northern kingdom of Israel, he when he decried the excesses and idolatries of God's chosen people, we come to these words that are in Amos chapter 8, beginning with verse 9, and it's on page 1351 of your Quest Bible, or page 1429 of the Bible in the Purak, and I'd invite you to take a moment, turn with me, and read along. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from, north, from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. As I said, people often think that this passage relates to that time which is coming, that moment of the 400 years of silence, and, but it begins with a theme that you hear throughout Amos and a number of the other prophets of the Old Testament which is the coming of the day of the Lord. This is often the case, what that meant for, the Israel, for God and what the Israelites thought that it would be were two different things. 
The Israelites had hoped that the day of the Lord would be a time when God would be fully present with them, when they would be able to truly experience his presence in a time when the kingdoms would be united again under a single king. There would no longer be Israel and Judah, but there would be God's chosen kingdom with a king of the line of David ruling them. And they would be able to push out all of those who had invaded and conquered the Israelites. These words must have struck the people who heard them in that strange place where they knew in their hearts that Amos' words were true while they continued to rebel against them in their thoughts and in their actions. We can easily forget that the role of a prophet was first and foremost to call people to change their ways and then to tell them what would happen should they not do so. Amos was seeking to correct the Israelites to fix their bad behavior, which if you can remember back to me, which seems like a small lifetime ago, God's people were neglecting to care for those who they were called to do so. They were not caring for the poor, they were denying them justice, and instead they were focusing their lives on superficial worship. But the prophet wanted to tell them just what would happen should they not change their wayward hearts. And those words are what would happen. The day of the Lord to which they had so looked forward would not occur, but rather something much more drastic. The sun would disappear in the middle of the day and people would walk in darkness. A sense of grief and mourning would come over the whole land as though all of Israel mourned for the loss of their only son. The world would be flipped upside down before them. Rather than seeing the freedom that they thought might occur with the uniting of their kingdoms, instead, God would send a famine on the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for, for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. We believe that that famine of hearing the words of the Lord was this 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments. And when you read these words and hear them, it's important for us to know that the phrase that we hear throughout the land. It's a single word in Hebrew, it's ba'ares. I'm not gonna ask any of you to repeat that, though I will call Chuck out at the next service. And it's a, well, throughout the land is a wonderful translation, a better one is on the earth. This was a time where no one throughout the bounds of creation would hear the word of the Lord. We also need to know that the word we translate as hearing it's this moa in Hebrew. It has a deeper connotation than simply hearing, but it's one of being obedient to what is heard. The easy way to describe that difference, it's the difference between hearing your spouse say, please empty the dishwasher, and actually going, opening the dishwasher, drying off the dishes because we never get them fully dry, and putting them up in the proper cupboard. That's obedience. Whenever I hear these words and Think through the time, what it must have been like for the Israelites to hear them, of knowing that there was a coming time when God's voice would be silent to them. I wondered what it would be like. And then it hit me, so I was preparing for this, that I've had a time in my life which was a lot like that. In May of 2007, I graduated from seminary in the sanctuary. Actually, I received my diploma about two feet that way, and I had a plan of what things were gonna be like for my life. I believed that I was going to finish seminary, 
I was gonna get married right here the next week, and then I was gonna go on to serve a church and I was gonna be the best darn pastor out there. I knew I could set the world on fire. Now this was May of 2007 though, and as some of you might recall, there was a little bit of an economic downturn starting that became known as the Great Recession of 2008. And a lot of churches didn't really want to hire a wet behind the ears 25 year old who didn't even know what he didn't know. So instead, I ended up finding a job in the nonprofit arena. I worked for about five years as a executive director of a small nonprofit that was based out of the school where my wife and I had both grown up. And if you've ever worked in a school, you know that you don't end up wearing one hat. You wear multiple. So I started teaching and doing all sorts of other random things around there, and after five or so years, I found that I was ready to move to something different. I wasn't happy. It was for reasons that in hindsight, they were selfish. And they were nothing but my pride. Where I, so I ended up landing with another organization, doing fundraising work for a few years, until downsizing left me without a job. Thankfully, I was able to go back and teach for a year. But then some restructuring of that division occurred. And I found that I was again without a job. And I felt as though I were floundering. I'd been out of seminary for nine years. I was ordained, and yet it felt as though I'd never used the skills, the training I'd received for anything other than sort of peripheral ministry where I would occasionally officiate weddings for friends or conduct a, ser a memorial service for people who needed them. And the moment came when I really felt as though I hit rock bottom. I remember it so clearly. We had gone down to the beach with Lauren's family and we were, had just put our daughter down for a nap when my phone rang and it was a call saying that a job that I thought was a sure thing had fallen through. Lauren and I started talking and tears were streaming down my face as I told her that I felt as though God had forgotten about me, as though God had abandoned me though he simply had forgotten everything about why he had called me to go to seminary, to be ordained, and yet had never called me to do the one thing that I was sure he had in my store for my life, which was to serve a church as a pastor. Many of us have had similar experiences to that. It might not be the exact same because I don't think many of you have ever gone to seminary, but we've all had those moments where it's felt as though God's voice is not calling out to us, where we're not hearing him speak to us where we need to hear. But we aren't alone in that. Many of us have, and if we think back to what this passage from Amos, as Amos was prophesying to the people of Israel, their exile at the hand of the Assyrian Empire lay only a few short decades away when they would feel as though God had abandoned them. And then when the people of Judah would hear this, these words, their basic exile in, by the hands of Babylon would occur less than 150 years after Israel as a country ceased to exist as anything more than a memory. I wanna bring us back to that idea of the anechoic chamber, which I showed you a little while ago, where while I can jokingly say that I would spend an afternoon there to get away from the noise that is my life. The reality of what it's like in one of those places is very different. When you walk into an anechoic chamber, the lack of sound becomes deafening. 
within moments of being in that room, you can start to hear a buzzing in your ears, like an extra strength level of tinnitus as you're actually able to hear the reverberation of your eardrums. Within a few minutes out of that, you can hear your heartbeat, not quietly, but as though you'd just finished running a marathon. And you can look down and see the chest muscles move as they move in time with the heartbeat. And then you start to feel and hear every breath you take as the sound of silence allows you to hear your lungs fill and the air to rush in and out. Some scientists who study this type of thing say that within 45 minutes of being in an anechoic chamber, you can start to suffer hallucinations and delusions. For the children of Israel, that 400 years of silence was four centuries of an anechoic chamber of the soul. The challenge for us is that in these times when we feel as though we are experiencing a famine of hearing the word of the Lord, we have to realize that God is still at work in our lives, even when we might not see it. During that time of famine of hearing God's word for Israel, God was shaping the world around him in a way that made it possible for this man who was coming named Jesus to move beyond having a small ministry in a backwater country to having it one that would shape all of history. Around the same time that Malachi uttered the, his final words of prophecy, a city-state in Italy was slowly gobbling up its neighbors and within a century had conquered all of the Italian peninsula. Over the course of the following years, they set their sights outward and eventually took over all of Europe, northern Africa, and what they called Asia Minor. With the Roman conquest came the building of roads. Which you can actually see this is a map of all of the Roman roads that existed in the first century AD. These roads made it possible for transportation of goods and for the Roman legions to get wherever they needed, but even more, it allowed for the growth of quick, yeah, quick information movement. And as the world under this was formed, a time that was known as the Pax Romana occurred the peace of Rome, and during the peace of Rome, a linguistic shift occurred within the world as they knew it, where the language of academics and government was Latin, but the common people began to all speak and read a tongue, dialect of Greek called Koine. And while these events were unfolding on a global scale, within the confines of Israel, as the people had returned from their exile, a conflict arose between two groups of Jewish thinkers, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees sought to firmly submit the religious practices of the Jewish people in the worship of the temple. And they wanted all of their theology to be based on the 613 mitzvahs of the law of Moses that are found in the Torah, the first five books of what we consider the Old Testament. The Pharisees, though, wanted to take a different understanding. They wanted to have a decentralized worship of the Lord and they wanted to draw their theology from all of what we consider the Old Testament. The, not just the Torah, but the prophets, the Psalms, even those historical books that we sometimes gloss over quickly in our reading. The, the biggest thing they did was they started the foundation of synagogues, not only within the confines of Israel, but everywhere that the Jewish people settled as part of the diaspora. 
This is the location of every synagogue that we have some historical record of from around the year 80 AD. Now I could talk with y'all for hours about the ways that God was shaping the world around, him, around them in that 400 years of silence. But I'm gonna ask you to just look at the influence of Rome and the rise of the Pharisees as two examples. As Jesus began his ministry, he would usually speak, not in the temple at first, but in the synagogues, where he would start to, to tell what it meant to, for the coming of the kingdom of God. And according to the book of Acts, when Paul went off on his missionary journeys, he always began by preaching in these same synagogues, in whichever city God had led him to be in. And what we understand is the New Testament was able to travel along those Roman roads to reach all corners of the world as the people of the time knew it. But even more importantly, it was written in Koine Greek, that language that was spoken and read by nearly every one of the Roman Empire. Which makes me want to shift back a little bit to that story I began telling y'all about my life. A short while after that moment where tears were flowing down my face, it dawned on Lauren and I that there was a tropical storm off the coast and we didn't have any groceries. So I offered to drive to the grocery store and pick up some things we might need for a few days so I was driving along, the outline rains from that storm beat down on my car and mirrored my mood completely. I was pulling into the parking lot of the grocery and my phone rang. And without looking at the number, I just picked it up and answered it, figuring it, that it was Lauren calling with a few things she, needed, she thought of that needed to be added to the grocery list or just to give me a little boost to my morale because it wasn't real high right then. But that call wasn't from my wife. It was from a friend who was wondering if I could have lunch with him when we got back in town and to see if I could assist in worship at Peachtree in a few weeks on a Sunday that happened to be short-staffed. The following week, uh, Chuck Roberts and I sat down for Lingua Tacos in the most disreputable but delicious restaurant you will ever find on Roswell Road. If you have a bad stomach, I don't suggest you go. But if you like good Mexican, it's worth a trip. As we sat there, Chuck began telling me ways that I would be a good fit to be on the pastoral staff at Peachtree. He went through places where God had been shaping my life for the prior nine years specifically, but even longer in ways that just I couldn't see at the time. As Chuck's words came forth, I realized that while there had been this time, this short moment where I couldn't hear God's voice, God had been at work. He was taking the places that I thought of as failures, as missed opportunities, and making them into something much greater than I could see on my own. God was at work in that time when I felt as though he was silent. Nearly all of us here today have had those moments those times when we feel as though our lives are an anechoic chamber of the soul without the presence of God in them. Each moment that we spend in that, that time begins to echo with our own thoughts, not the thoughts of God. We start to feel alone. We start to feel as though we are abandoned and we cannot look outward until later to see the work that God is doing, the beauty 
is that when we feel abandoned, when we feel as though God is not with us, he is working for a much greater good. That same beauty is part of the mystery of the Lord. It's the same mystery that saw a triune God who existed perfectly without need for anything else decide to create all that we can see and know and understand outside of himself. It was that same mystery that saw God take on human flesh to ultimately walk to the cross that we might not live with sin in our lives. It's a mystery that Karl Barth described by writing, the word of God, a man, a man, the word of God. God wills to veil himself by becoming a man in order that by breaking out of the veiling to unveil himself as a man. He wills to be silent and yet also to speak. So the times will come for all of us where we walk through that moment of silence, where we walk through a time when we cannot hear God's voice present with us. And when we do so, we don't do so alone. But I would invite that when you go through that time, you let your prayer be that which comes from the 14th century British mystic Julian of Norwich. And for the good love that our good Lord hath to all that shall be saved, he comforteth readily and sweetly, meaning thus, it is true that sin is the cause of all this pain, but all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be made well. Please pray with me. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that those moments will exist when we cannot hear your voice, that moments will come when we feel as though we are walking this journey alone, that you are with us, that you are ever working in the world to create a greater good than we can ever see. We know that you are always with us, even when it's the hardest. And we pray that we might always see your voice, see your eyes upon us and hear your voice calling out to us. For all shall be well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.